Welcome back. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the week. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor, and it's great to have your company. In just over 10 minutes' time, we'll be walking you through a great trade yarn which looks at the use of safeguards in post-Brexit Europe. The cracks between the EU and the UK on steel importation restrictions point to a growing trade tension between the two sides, an issue that we seem to be returning to time and time again here on the MLEX podcast. And Poppy Carnell will be joining us from the UK to tell us everything that we need to know about that. First up, though, a central part of the EU's ambitious privacy legislation, the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, was put to the test recently. A European court had been asked whether Belgium's data privacy enforcer was entitled to pursue an investigation into Facebook over the platform's use of cookies, or whether it was in fact required to refer the matter to its Irish counterpart under the so-called one-stop-shop arrangement. And the court's decision isn't quite as cut and dried as you may expect. There's so much to unpack here, and who better to help us with that than Matthew Newman, MLEX's chief correspondent, covering data protection and privacy from Brussels. Okay, Matthew, so let's start with an overview here, given that there are many complexities to cover. What did the EU Court of Justice decide about the GDPR's one-stop shop in the Belgian Facebook case? Uh, Hello, James. Yes, it's great to talk to you about this case because it marks the first time that the EU's highest court has ruled on the one-stop shop in the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, that's GDPR, known around the world. So under that regulation, the one-stop shop means that companies are regulated in only one country in the 27-nation European Union, and that is the country where they have their main establishment. So according to the court, a national supervisory authority under certain conditions provided for in the GDPR can exercise its power to bring an infringement of the GDPR to the attention of a national court in that member state, even if this supervisory authority is not the lead authority for that company. So that's quite important because this goes back to a big fight between the Belgian data protection authority and the company Facebook because Facebook was arguing that because it's based in Ireland, only Ireland should deal with all its allegations that it's violating the GDPR. You know, essentially, Facebook does not want to face uh, the idea of being regulated in 27 different member states. So here we have the court uh, weighing in and saying for the first time, well, the Belgians are right. Uh, they do have the power to look into Facebook and specifically a allegation that Facebook uh, was using cookies and um, other kind of tracking tools to follow Belgians around the web and that would be a violation of the GDPR because there was not proper consent for that. So Facebook has ordered, uh, has argued rather that this one-stop shop is the rule because it took effect in May 2018, even though this case started way back in 2015. And so the Belgians said, well, look, we should be able to continue our case regardless 
of whether or not there is the new GDPR's one-stop shop. And the court said, you're right, Belgium, you can continue that case. And Matthew, just to be super clear here for those unfamiliar with this concept of one-stop shop, under normal circumstances, it would be assumed that the Belgians would raise this concern, hand it over to the Irish in the case of uh, Facebook, because it's based in Ireland, um, in, in terms of its European headquarters, and that would be it. Uh, in what way are things different now? So you're absolutely right. Um, there are uh, very strict procedures in the GDPR about um, uh, cooperation mechanism. Is, that's the, the jargon for it. And in this case, again, you're right. The Belgians claim that they sought help, uh, mutual assistance, is the jargon again, from the Irish, and they did not get that mutual assistance, and so they plowed ahead with their investigation. Now, the court said, Belgium, you are absolutely entitled to continue your investigation as long as you have followed those procedures. So it wasn't like a blank check to all the uh, data protection authorities to just start their own investigations. They still have to go through those procedures, and that's where um, you know the Irish are, are were happy with the decision because they said you know the the court backed up the one-stop shop, um, and also the Belgians were happy with it because they said, well, look, we we follow the rules. Now it's unclear still today um, who's right because this still it goes back to an appeal court in Brussels, and that court will decide exactly how to apply the EU court's ruling. Okay, so the Belgians are happy, the Irish are happy, but I'm assuming big tech is not happy with this outcome. To what extent should these uh, big platforms, these big tech companies be worried about the court's ruling? Yeah, this is really the interesting part of the story because right when the uh, ruling came out, a group, uh, an association called the Computer and Communications Industry Association, or CCIA, um, they said this was not a good decision because it exposes the, their members, which include Amazon, Google, eBay, to more um, liability and compliance costs. So they're automatically thinking that more cases are going to be brought against big tech. And they're probably right because once the court has said Belgium was correct in, its pers- in pursuing Facebook, other Uh, authorities are going to say, well, why don't we see if those exceptions in the GDPR can apply to us? And on top of that, you have um, competition authorities in Europe using um, data protection rules, notably in Germany, to go after big tech, Um, notably um, uh, Facebook. There's a a pending case uh, in Germany uh, that uh, Facebook is using it's uh, the various data streams between Instagram and WhatsApp uh, inappropriately melding those into one giant um, database. And that case has gone to the Court of Justice to see if, if the competition authority can use GDPR. So it's, it's very likely that other authorities that are kind of aggressive, you know, like in Belgium, in France, in Spain, they're going to say, wow, we've got a great opening to go after big tech. Uh, but, but Matthew, if, if they were to do that, that would really undermine the whole principle of the one-stop shop, would it not? Well, it would if they didn't follow the GDPR's procedures. And that is, um, like you were just saying, they have to notify 
the authority that they're investigating, if that authority says, uh, the main authority, so this would be Ireland, if that uh, authority says, well, actually, we, we already are working on that case or we, we, we uh, are, are fully competent to do it, then it ha goes into the hands of the Irish. That's actually um, interesting because right now we have a case against um, WhatsApp where um, WhatsApp has changed its privacy policy um, and that's elicited a huge amount of concern around the world and the uh, Irish are investigating that. So uh, that's a, a case where the uh, Germans have wanted to investigate uh, Facebook for that um, policy change and then the Irish have said, well, no, that case is for us. So it's not a complete dismantling of the one-stop shop. It's more like you have to make your case that the procedures apply. And, you know, that's kind of a high bar. Um, so, you know, I think companies will be nervous about this. Uh, we just have to see how many uh, other authorities will, will really go for it and, and try to meet those, those uh, exceptions. Now, the EU's data protection regulation, the GDPR, is known to be tough. It is, after all, a world-first trend-setting piece of legislation. So what's wrong with the enforcement, uh, the enforcement side of things since the GDPR took effect in May 2018? Well, this is where the politics come in, and this is why this case is so interesting. Um, back in um, March, uh, there was a flurry of letters back and forth between various data protection authorities, uh, notably in Germany and um, the Irish DPC, uh, ab about the effectiveness of the one-stop shop. I think what's happened is that we've had the GDPR in force for three years, and so far we ho only have one case against big tech. So that was against Twitter uh, back in December, and it took forever for that, the authority, the Irish DPC, to get that case going. And ultimately, there, there was challenges to the level of the fine, um, and it went back and forth. Helen Dixon, who's in charge of the uh, Irish DPC, has criticized this whole cooperation mechanism, saying it's slowing down decisions, and uh, the other authorities don't understand the GDPR. So there's a lot of tension going on, and it's, it's quite uh, unnerving that uh, the, the criticism is that the Irish DPC is just not up to the job, that they just don't have the amount of staff, they don't have the, um, the, the expertise, the resources, and they're handling every single big tech company, except for Amazon, which is based in, in Luxembourg. Matthew, are those criticisms fair, do you think? Is there an argument to be made that the Irish Data Protection Authority isn't doing enough? I would say that there is some um, uh, real criticism there that's valid uh, because they, they, they get bogged down in their procedures. They, they would admit that they, they need more resources. Uh, they've got 354 cross-border complaints on GDPR, um, 83 active uh, inquiries and 27 cross-border cases and you know six or seven of them may be decided this year uh, that's just a hell of a lot of work so the other thing is that all this is brand new um, they're, they're, the procedures are, are new um, the, they're worried about being um, overturned in court uh, so that would be embarrassing for them if they in their first cases are overturned so they're extraordinarily cautious 
uh, and you're dealing with um, you know Irish law, Irish administrative law. Um, you know, in other countries that might be more efficient. Um, we saw in France, for instance, that a case uh, against uh, Google uh, took nine months. And so, you know, the CNIL, which is the French authority, could, you know, it could be argued that they're much more efficient. So there, I do think that there's some valid criticism there. On the other hand, um, you know, Helen Dixon says, look, um, we're doing um, as best as we can, and the other authorities are simply not helping the situation by constantly uh, second-guessing the decisions. Mm. So returning to Belgium's uh, clash with Facebook, what's the most likely outcome of the court's ruling, and does, it, does this ruling mean that the Belgian authority will continue to review the case? Yeah, so actually we don't know that um, because the Court uh, of Appeal in Brussels will have to decide whether or not the Belgian uh, Data Protection Authority has met the criteria, the procedures in the GDPR. And this is where we get into a bit of the uh, he said, she said uh, aspect of this. What was really interesting is that in the, the hearing that I attended last year on this case, the Irish weren't even there, so they couldn't even defend themselves. Uh, so the Belgians said, well, we informed you about this case and, and you didn't do anything about it. And then the Irish, um, from what we understand, um, are going to push back against that. And there, there may be more to this case um, in the next couple of months because uh, we just simply don't know if, if the Belgian DPA uh, was right and they should have um, uh, transferred this case um, you know, three or four years ago. So we'll see. And I, we're going to follow this. I'm looking forward to it. That decision actually will be really important uh, to see in this particular case if uh, this will actually land in Dublin and not in Brussels. Matthew, thank you so much for talking to me today. I think this is the first time that we've referred to Brussels as the capital of Belgium rather than the seat of the EU uh, institution. So that was a refreshing change. Let's catch up again very soon. Bye. Thanks very much. Matthew Newman, MLEX's chief correspondent covering data protection, privacy, telecoms and artificial intelligence from Brussels. And his analysis of this case was written with our London-based privacy correspondent Vesela Gladicheva. Vesela was unwell this week, so she wasn't able to join us on the podcast. We were obviously much the poorer for it. But Vesela and Matthew's article is online and ready for you to read. Our address is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just head for the News Hub tab for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis from around the globe. Still to come, a clash over steel and trade policies marks a growing rift between the EU and the UK. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast on regulatory affairs. If you haven't already, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. And we usually land in your feed on Friday afternoons GMT. James Paniki with you. And as our readers would know by now, UK steelmakers will soon face stiffer competition from foreign rivals for products such as tin mill and wire rod while also facing limits on selling in their competitors' markets. It's a tough situation for the UK's steel industry, and it's linked to Brexit. Poppy Carnell is MLEX's chief correspondent covering trade, and she joins us now from the idyllic English-Welsh border. Um, OK, uh, Poppy, let's start from the very beginning here. What is a safeguard? 
So a safeguard is a trade defence mechanism that can be used by any country that feels that a certain product needs more protection. So this often happens if there is a sudden surge in the imports of a certain product, and in this case we're looking at steel, and in which case they can impose certain trade restrictions to um, try and protect their own market a little bit more. Mm. And that is exactly what has happened uh, in both the EU and the UK. Tell me something about the context in which uh, those safeguards were imposed. So this actually originates from an action from Donald Trump in 2018. He decided to impose a similar trade restriction on steel um, for most global imports. It wasn't a safeguard that Donald Trump used. It was something under what's called a Section 232, which refers to um, in the name of national security. So he was saying that imports could be damaging um, to the national security of, of his country, which is um, a much bigger statement. But because he imposed this restriction, it meant that the EU steelmakers were very concerned that steel that was meant to be going to the US was suddenly going to bounce into the EU market. So that's why the European Commission looked into whether there should be an investigation and indeed they imposed their own measure. From that, the UK obviously was in the EU at the time in 2018 when it came out of the EU and stepped outside of its customs union uh, at the beginning of this year, the UK decided that it would carry on with the safeguard to protect its own um, steelmakers. And so that's why we have both. Well, Poppy, tell me something about the mechanism of the safeguard. How does it work? In this case, the EU wanted to make sure that the steel that was coming into uh, its market before uh, Section 232 could still go ahead. They didn't want to damage the 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 market that was already in place. So what they've done is impose a tariff above a certain level. So they've capped tariff-free imports to a similar level that they would have seen from trade in you know the, the years leading up to the imposition of the safeguard. And then once that tonnage of steel level has been reached, then a 25% tariff applies. And that's the same for the UK. And, and that is uh, obviously the state of play at the moment, but things are evolving, aren't they? I mean, how is the discussion about safeguards changing in both the EU and the UK? Well, what's happened in the last few weeks and what's been leading up to this in the last few months is the question of whether this safeguard should continue. So it was only meant to be in place for three years. And of course, that is that is this year. Um, by the 1st of July, it was meant to expire. But both the EU and the UK looked into whether the safeguard actually needed to stay in place because there was still a threat of um, a surge of imports from other countries since the Section 232 in the US is still in place. Both have said in the last few weeks that, yes, they do need to keep this safeguard in place. So just last Friday, the EU governments decided that it was indeed necessary and so they sort of rubber stamped the the final decision from the from the EU side so for the EU it simply means from the 1st of July the mechanism that they have will continue 
The UK has done the same thing and they have also published their final recommendation, the uh, Trade Remedies Authority, just uh, a couple of weeks ago too. But what's different for them is, yes, they want to continue this, the safeguard, but they have decided to only have the safeguard continue for roughly half the uh, steel products that they originally did have. They used to have 19 products under the, uh, under the safeguard and now they will only have 10, whereas the EU has 23. So you can imagine that for, for steelmakers from the UK side, they're worried because there are certain goods that, um, such as tin mill, wire rod uh, and others that they do make, but they will not have the tariffs or the, the sort of cap and tariffs, um, which is uh, from the, the safeguard um, in place, which it, it is a worry for them uh, because obviously if you're a steelmaker in the US or Brazil or Turkey or in the EU, from the 1st of July, they can um, start importing into the UK tariff-free uh, above the quota. All right. So just summarising the state of play at the moment, the UK and the EU's safeguards are no longer aligned. And this could arguably uh, give one of those two a strategic advantage when negotiating with um, with the US, for example. That, in a sense, uh, is the argument and that is the concern of uh, UK steelmakers. Is that right? That's one of their concerns, absolutely. Uh, their, their biggest concern is that they, they could suddenly get this flood, um, to be dramatic, <laughs> the, uh, a, you know, an increase in imports in these certain goods uh, from from lots of countries but you're right that there is still a discussion with the US on um whether they can all step down from this and and remove their trade restrictions but at the moment that's not in place you you do see within the EU regulation there's space for that you know there are these reviews within their safeguards within the the, the next 3 years because they they've decided to extend this for another 3 years but within those 3 years they do have uh, regular reviews so if the US decided to step down from using its section 232 on steel then um the EU or the UK could do the same what about the fear of retaliation as a result of these safeguards what does the future hold on that front once a safeguard has been in place for 3 years Rules under the World Trade Organization say that other countries are allowed to seek compensation if those measures do continue beyond that, which we have here. China, Russia, Turkey, there are countries out there that have all made noises to say that that's something that they would uh, seek to do. So it is a concern. It was certainly a concern amongst um, EU governments when they were deciding on whether to um, back having the um, the extended safeguard um, because it's it's a it's a it's a real fear for for certain um, countries and and um, sectors because if a country decided to um, retaliate that would mean they would be able to impose tariffs up to the same value of the steel safeguard and that can be on any goods it can be completely outside of steel this could be wine this could be cars this could be cheese this could be whatever hurts the most they could go after and obviously um, that's a concern for all industries potentially poppy it has been great fun talking about this uh, today thank you so much for taking the time you're welcome thank you very much 
Poppy Carnell is MLEX's Chief Correspondent covering trade and she was speaking to us from the UK and you can find Poppy's analysis of this issue at our website mlexmarketinsight.com that's mlexmarketinsight all one word dot com just click on the news hub tab and our subscribers of course have full access to the two separate portfolios of reporting and analysis covering the EU and the UK steel safeguard reviews Now, it's never been easy to say this, but we've run out of time on today's podcast. However, I am pleased to be able to tell you that we'll be back in your feed next week at the same time for the latest regulatory stories from around the globe. Until then, from me, James Panicki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for listening. I hope to see you again very, very soon. Bye for now.